Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, um, verses 12 through 28. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good and to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of, the, of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I will put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The word of the Lord. Right. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Glad you're here. Uh, I'm Paul. Um, I'm one of the pastors of our church. Again, very thankful for all of you who uh, are here. And uh, last week I wasn't feeling well, so I wasn't here last week. Our family uh, all came down with a little bit of a cold. So I'm thankful for all of you who prayed for me and my family uh, while we were sick last week. But we're feeling better, much better. We're all back here today. So Praise the Lord for that. And so, um, yeah, I'm glad I can come here to worship with you all and continue in our uh, series through the first, uh, through the first and second uh, Thessalonians, the two letters that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And today we're actually concluding uh, first Thessalonians. So the first letter that Paul wrote, we are concluding here today. And last week, our brother Nathan uh, preached on the part of the letter where Paul writes about the end times and preparing for the end times. And the Apostle Paul is uh, addressing some of these fears that the people had in Thessalonica regarding those who had already died, right? Those who were dead, the Christians who had died, basically asking what happened to these Christians who had died, right? They had a hard time understanding um, why these people did not live forever as God had, as, as was promised to them through Christ. And so they thought they were supposed to literally be immortal. And so they had a hard time coping with this and understanding um, what this meant with the death of these recent members. So I think they were a little hopeless because of that. They felt hopeless about their faith. And so Paul goes on to explain what this means, that when Christ returns, the dead will also rise up from the grave. And we know this because Jesus himself died and rose again. And Jesus one day will return to judge those who are living and those who are dead. So the question is, what about in the meantime, right? Before Jesus returns, what's happening there? Well, for now, those who are dead, who have put their faith in Christ, their souls are made perfect in holiness, meaning that they are in heaven with our triune God, and they are waiting for the full redemption of their bodies when Jesus returns. And we see this in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, actually, in chapter 5. He writes that uh, he would rather be absent from his body and be at home with God. 
So why would Paul write in one point that he'd be, rather be absent from his body if he believes in a bodily resurrection when Jesus returns? Well, it's because in the in-between time we're in, the already, not yet, the, the already victorious work of Christ, but the not yet consummation of the redemption of the world, uh, we, have, we still have eternal life. And even though our bodies are not redeemed, we will still be in heaven with our Lord. And because of that, when Jesus returns, we will all be resurrected. And so we do not know when this will happen. We don't know when Jesus return, will return. It will be abrupt and random and unpredictable. And so that's why this should ultimately motivate us, as Nathan preached last week, to be knowledgeable about his word, right? To be vigilant in our faith and not to be too comfortable and be encouraging one another constantly to continue to make disciples for the kingdom of God. Right? We are called to persevere in the here and now and to be faithful during this time as we eagerly wait for Jesus to return. And so we are in the last days right now. We are in the last days waiting for Jesus to return. And so this leads us to our passage for today where Paul gives uh, further instructions to the church. And he instructs the church how to live as the church in light of these last days. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to guide and lead us here today as we go into his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your word to speak to us, that Lord, you would uh, not only teach us, but Lord, that you would uh, work in our hearts to inspire us, to motivate us to be the church that you call us to be in the last days. So God, help us here as we worship together. May you be with each and every one of us here in person, watching online. May your spirit move. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this, um, then, so, so now, uh, you know, we're going to go into our passage and you know, to, to start off, I want to share, uh, when I was growing up in the church, um, I, I'm Korean-American, and I grew up in uh, mainly Korean church, and one of the unfortunate things that happened often in Korean churches is that, um, that there was a lot of discord and division in the church, more often than we would like to admit. And there would be many, many issues that happen in the Korean church. I myself was a part of a church when I was a kid that eventually did split into another church, so I have first-hand experience of this. I didn't really understand what was going on because I was a kid back then, but uh, I remember going through an experience like that. And oftentimes this happens at a leadership level where leaders disagree um, between themselves about their different uh, philosophies, and a lot of times this happens among different generations, right? When you're in different uh, cultural backgrounds in a a second-generation church versus the first-generation first church, there can be a lot of differences and a lot of division as a result, a lot of disagreement about the vision of the church and the next steps the church should be taking. And this sometimes leads to a lack of trust in the leadership also. So that's one source of division, right, in, in the leadership itself. But another source of division and discord in the church is when members vehemently disagree with the leadership, right? Um, and a lot of the times, it's about things that are sadly very unimportant, right? Things that are, in the grand scheme of things, not very important, but these things cause division and discord in the church. One example that created a church split was that the leaders uh, of, of a church chose to hire a new, 
more qualified choir director instead of keeping their old one. And the leaders had um, talked to the previous choir director, had this conversation that they're going to hire someone else, and it appeared that she understood the circumstances, but this led to many people objecting to what had happened, feeling that this person was done wrong, there were many arguments that rose up, a lot of hurt feelings as a result, and it actually led to a church split. Now, the leadership, of course, probably could have handled this situation better, but you know, we see how relatively unimportant things can create such discord and division. Right? Who leads the choir would lead to a church split. You know, how can we be a church as a result that avoids these type of pitfalls? Well, Paul gives us some instructions here on how we are to be the church in the last days. So the first thing he addresses is actually leadership in the church. And he says this in verses 12 to 13. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So Paul is calling upon the church to respect the authority and leadership of the church. Right? God has placed these leaders to labor with you and to be over you and to admonish you, which means to correct you. So Paul says to respect the authority and, and leaders that God has placed in the church. Of course, that doesn't mean you blindly listen to everything the leaders say. Right? Later on in our text, Paul says to test everything that the prophets say, which we'll cover in more detail later on. But you know, how do we test what the prophets say? How do we test them? We test them in light of Scripture, in light of all the letters that Paul has written and others have written, all the Gospels, the four Gospels, all the prophecies in the New Testament, like the book of Revelation, and all the prophets in the book of the law and history of the Old Testament. We are to test everything in light of Scripture. So that goes for church leaders as well. We test everything our leaders do in light of Scripture. And if your leaders are not following Scripture, then it is your responsibility as members of the church to speak up, to object, to appeal the actions of the church. And of course, that type of conflict can be very hard and arduous and difficult for a church, but it is very necessary. And that is the responsibility of the members of the church to speak up in those situations. But again, this is about following scripture, right? We have to Keep that in mind. It's not about preference per se, right? We're talking about are they acting godly? Are our leaders acting in a godly manner according to 1 Timothy 3, right? Are they, are many sources of, of conflict in the church are surrounded around money. So are they taking care of money in a godly way? Or are they misusing their money? Are they being greedy in their money? And the members of the church should be holding leadership accountable for the funds of the church. That's very important and needed to hold leaders accountable. Right? Are the leaders promoting biblical truth? Are they teaching biblical truths? Are your leaders emphasizing the truth of the gospel, emphasizing the work of Jesus Christ, or are they being very legalistic in what they teach you? Right? Are they teaching a false gospel, saying if you believe in this, then maybe good things will happen to you? These are things that need to be tested 
right? So as members, you are not supposed to just, oh, okay, I listen to everything the leaders say, but you test everything in light of Scripture. But Paul does say here in our passage, we are to respect our leaders as well. So that means we do not create tension and discord over preferences, right? We don't create division over unimportant things like who the choir director is or, you know, I prefer hymns instead of contemporary music or, oh, I'd rather have a 15-minute a sermon instead of a 30-minute sermon or I'd rather have a 60-minute sermon instead of a 30-minute sermon or just because you prefer one way of worship or the way some activity is conducted, that's not always a good reason to question something. Of course, there's room for dialogue, feedback to get better about things, and leaders should always welcome that. And that's a, a red flag if leaders are not welcome to any feedback or dialogue. So that is one thing to be mindful of. But the one aspect that requires the most accountability is discerning whether or not our leaders are going against the truth of Scripture. That is what is truly important. In most other situations, we are to submit to our leaders that God has placed for his church. And that's why when you become a member of a church, and especially when you become a member of our church, you actually promise to submit to the authority of the church as well. So in this text, it's not um, clear, actually, who these leaders are. It says those who are over you, right, over us. You know, however, the rest of Scripture seems to indicate that this is referring to elders and deacons. Our church actually did not have elders for a very long time. For actually the first 38 years of our church, we did not have elders. We only had deacons. But back in 2013, the pastors, through much prayer and discernment, decided to raise up elders. And our leadership found that elders is, having elders is very biblical. It is a biblical office that we are to have according to Scripture. So the people who are over us that Paul refers to are both elders and deacons, according to the Scriptures. You know, the word in Greek for elder is presbytos, uh, which is another word for overseer, so we can see how over us and overseer is related. Another other word uh, that is used is diakonos, which is our word for deacon in the church. But like I said, for a long time we did not have elders, and one reason was that some believed that the title of elder or overseer was only for the pastor, right? Only the pastor is the presbytos, is the, the elder or overseer. But the Bible does seem to distinguish elders that help in the teaching and preaching of the word, which is what a pastor mainly does, but also those who rule, the ruling aspect of the church. In 1 Timothy, Paul, 1 Timothy 5, Paul says this to Timothy. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul says explicitly that here are, here are those elders who preach and teach and rule, right? doing all three of those things, teach, preach, and rule. But that also means that he is implicitly saying that there are elders who do not preach and teach regularly. So there's a slight distinction here between a pastor who is an elder and an elder who simply helps to rule or govern or shepherd the church. Uh, another reason why we didn't have elders was because many were afraid of installing elders. Uh, many, uh, through their previous church experiences, felt that elders were the ones who abused their authority the most and are often the most egotistical and prideful individuals. Now, you know, people actually feel that way about pastors too, but 
you at least need a pastor for a church, right? Like, you can't have a pastor. Like, you have to have a pastor, but you don't need an elder. So that was the, you know, the thinking, right? You need to have a pastor, but you don't need an elder. So let's not have elders, right? But, you know, that can't be a good enough reason for why we don't do it, right? It's a commanded scripture to, to install and ordain elders. So we looked at the scripture and saw that it was something we needed to do. And so we took that step here at Cornerstone. And our, our elders mainly function to shepherd the church, to, to discipline uh, the church, to, to cast a vision of the church and praying and considering the future ministries and goals as well. And so the pastors also do these things, but, but the pastors are mainly for the primary teaching and, and preaching of the word of God. And so Paul in our passage for today in 1 Thessalonians is, is likely referring to, you know, submit to your elders, submit to your deacons, submit to your pastors, submit to them. But also probably includes those who teach children or those who teach youth. That includes those individuals as well. Children are supposed to submit to the authority of their teachers, and, and the youth are supposed to submit to the authority of their teachers and counselors as well because they have authority over their students, and the students should respect that authority over the teachers also. So going back to our text, there seems to have been some tensions here about this, right? Perhaps maybe the, the members and leaders had some um, issues and, and tension, and we can imagine uh, that happening in a young church like they, they had in Thessalonica. There were a lot of tensions going on to live out this calling as a church. So Paul is saying to respect the authority and leaders in the church. Let them lead you. But he also goes on to say how we should be more peaceful with not one another as well. So he talks about, in the next section, relationships inside the church and outside the church. He says to be at peace with one another, and then goes on to describe how this looks like, how to be at peace with one another. So we're going to go through this list that he, he goes through. He first says to admonish the idol, right? So that's most likely referring to those who are undisciplined or rebellious, most likely in their labors, in their, in their work, in their jobs, you know, that's a, a more literal translation of the Greek to be undisciplined or rebellious. So basically he's calling for them to be more disciplined in their life and in their work, to admonish those people to, to be more disciplined. So that's in our daily lives, our, our labors of our everyday work, how we work in our families, how we right, properly function in our families, how we do our part in our family life, in our work, in our um, workplaces, Right, make sure we are not undisciplined in those places to do the work that we are supposed to do. And also in the church, that we are to contribute and serve in the church and labor in the church. And so um, we are to, to, to do all these things. And, and actually, when we are faithful in all these things, we can see actually how God can use it for his, for his witness, especially in our workplaces. When we are faithful in our work, it allows us to be faithful witnesses to those around us, and we can share the gospel even that much more. In this one article, uh, it, said, it said this about the opportunity that we have to be uh, when we are faithful in our work. It says, when you get a chance to speak the gospel to one of your coworkers, make sure you've already been backing it up by being a good worker yourself. Build a reputation as a person who works with purpose, creativity, kindness, and encouragement. Then when you get to share the gospel, people will see how you reflect the character of your king. What a great opportunity we have in our workplaces to be faithful witnesses. And being faithful in our work can help us in that endeavor. Being faithful, being a, a good 
uh, a teammate, to be a good coworker that can go a long way in our witness as Christians. There are countless stories of people who have uh, come to faith through their coworkers because they saw how loving their coworkers were, how they cared about them, how they worked so diligently in what they were doing. This is a great opportunity for us to be faithful in our work, to not be undisciplined in it so that we can be witnesses for Christ. But like I said, it's also that we are called to be uh, faithful laborers in the church, right? The church needs all of you to participate and work for the function of the church and more importantly, for the glory of God. The gathering of believers, the church, is not solely for our personal benefits, not for our individualistic benefits alone, Of course, we are to be spiritually fed and nourished by the Spirit when we come together. But it's also about serving alongside each other, to serve one another, to to do it for the glory of God. And so may we all participate in that work together as the church. Next, it says that we are to encourage the faint-hearted. Right? The f- word faint-hearted uh, implies those who are lowly or discouraged. Right? So we're to help those uh, who are lowly and, and discouraged in life, to show, show sympathy to them and empathy, ep- empathy to them, to those who are uh, perhaps struggling with depression or who are feeling low in their current situations, who are stressed because of their circumstances. So let us lift one another up and encourage each other with the gospel spurring each other on to turn to Christ even in our discouragement, even in our, dispre- in our depression. Uh, he can lift us up out of our sadness, out of this low place we are in. And may we encourage each other to trust in his finished work, that Christ has finished the work in us, and that we are victorious over these things, and that even if, if in this life we struggle for the rest of our lives, we have eternity to look forward to, We have a hope that is better than all the struggles and sufferings that we endure in this world. Let us point each other to that truth weekly, daily. Trust in the finished work of Christ. And then Paul talks about how we are to help the weak. Paul mentions that in his letter to the Romans, the weak can mean being uh, spiritually weak, so that can be uh, what, what he's referring to, or it can mean those who are physically weak as well. Paul is directing believers to help those who are struggling in faith, encouraging them to turn away from their sins and turn to Christ, but also to care for the physically sick, right? the physically needy, to care for those people as well. Right? May we be a church who cares for those who are weak among us, those emotionally and spiritually, and but also those who are weak physically. That is what God is calling us to do as a church. And then, he, and then Paul directs Christians later to be patient with everyone in the church, to, patient, to be patient with one another. So even those who are difficult to deal with in the church, even, those who, uh, even though we try to direct them and help them, they continue to make poor decisions in their lives, right? And, and we are called to help them over and over and over again. I remember uh, my parents, uh, when they lived here and they were, they were going to a, a local church, they um, continued to help this family uh, in the church who continued to make poor decisions financially. They would just make one bad decision after another bad decision after another bad decisions. 
Um, and my parents would try over and over again to help them. But no matter how hard they tried, these people would still make the same decisions over and over and over again. One time, they actually um, bought a brand new car, even though they were in debt for a failed business. They bought a brand new car, even though they were in debt for a previously failed business. You can imagine how frustrating that is. You're trying to help them, like, oh, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't buy a new car. Like, please, just buy a used car. Like, you, you cannot afford it. But they still do it anyway. God calls us to be patient with these individuals, to care for them, continue to try to teach them, continue to try to correct them. And so Paul is saying our relationships in all these situations, inside and outside the church, are to be filled with peace. And may that lead us to admonish the idle, encourage the discouraged and lonely, the lowly, the depressed, help the weak, and be patient with one another. The last few verses that we see speak of the type of conduct we are to have as a church. And he begins by saying that we are to not repay anyone with evil for evil, but instead to do good to one another. He's saying we should do good to one another who are both Christians and non-Christians. We are not to seek revenge or payback in any way, but seek, we instead seek to do good to those who have wronged us who have hurt us. Then that transitions into our very famous set of verses, verses 16 to 18. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now that last part, in all circumstances, is actually referring to all of the above. We are to rejoice in all circumstances, to pray without ceasing in all circumstances, to give thanks in all circumstances circumstances. So we are to do good to others because as Christians we are content in God. Right? No matter what circumstance, we are content in God. And so we can do good to others. That means we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit and live out the fruit of that Spirit and be good to one another. Right? And we allow the Spirit to move powerfully in us. And, and he, Paul also says to not quench the Spirit. Right? Don't quench the Spirit. Right? In those days, there were prophecies happening, uh, and the church was probably very cynical and questioning, like, oh, what are these prophets doing here? Right? And that's understandable. Right? If some guy comes in all of a sudden into our church and he says, oh, I have all the answers, you know, we should maybe question him right, to some degree. Uh, like I mentioned before, Paul says we are to test everything. Right? So we test everything according to the Word of God. The Word of God guides us to see if the Spirit is truly working. To, to give an example, you might have heard that there was a, a revival happening the past couple weeks at a Christian university in Kentucky called Asbury. And if you didn't hear about it, it was um, just like they had an ordinary chapel. They have it like every week. Um, but something happened where people just started to continue to pray and sing even after the service had ended, and it basically didn't stop. It continued on for 24 hours a day, two, for two straight weeks, and they actually just recently stopped the on-campus ones because it was just too much to handle for the school, and there were visitors coming and all this, and so it became a big deal. And you can look up the details for yourselves uh, if you want to know. But the big question everyone had around the revival was, you know, what do we make of it? Right? What, what is going on? Is this truly a revival happening where more people will 
come to faith and repentance. That's what, usually what a revival is, where people come to faith in Christ and repent of their sins and, and begin to live a life of, fruit of, the, of the fruit of the Spirit in them. Uh, and Scripture says that we will know a true revival based on the fruit. And the fruit is faith, repentance, and living in the Spirit. And so from these early stages, it, it, it appeared that there is a lot of that happening at this revival, which is a blessing. And we pray that revival will continue on uh, and happen all around our country, all around our world, that many will come to faith and repent of their sins and live in the spirit of Christ. However, there have been other revivals where we have seen bad fruit as a result, where people have been hurt because of these types of revivals. In these cases where there are revival meetings happening, uh, we see preachers try to emotionally manipulate people to have this very uh, emotional and visceral experience. And the main purpose, unfortunately, a lot of times is to get your money, for you to just give up your money to the preacher for financial gain. And so when we look at these things, we test all of this based on the word of God. So as a church, of course, we allow the Spirit to work in a powerful way. But the most important thing is to trust in Christ and trust in his word, his infallible and errant word that he has given to us, the truth of the gospel. So the final words of Paul in this letter is a, a blessing, a benediction. Basically, that's what a benediction means, a word of blessing. And, and he says that he prays that God would sanctify them. He blesses them and prays that God would sanctify them and work in them. And he says this in verse 24. He says, He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Paul lists out a lot of things for the church to do here in our passage for today. You can you know, see the list right up here, right? Just to recap, we're to submit to our leaders and authorities, which means we are to have godly leaders and godly overseers, right? And we are to, in our, in our relationships, we are to um, love one another, Right? both inside and outside the church. We're to encourage each other in the faith and admonish one another when needed. And we are to conduct ourselves in a godly manner and do good, be good to one another despite our circumstances and, and be filled with joy and contentment in our lives. That means we are to allow the Spirit to fill us up and, test, and we test everything by the Word of God and we trust in that Word. And so again, that's a lot of things that we are called to do. But Paul says here, God is faithful. God is faithful and he will surely do it. That means we don't have to be perfect, brothers and sisters. God will make it happen. God will build up his church. And we trust in Jesus to help us in that work that we are called to do. In the work we do, Jesus will help us just because God, but just because God is faithful and, and he will do it doesn't mean we get to ignore it, right? We just ignore what Paul is saying. But it means that God will help us in all these things. And even when we fail to do it, God will redeem it and use it for his glory. Some way, somehow. We probably won't even understand how God does it or know how God does it. But he will redeem it and use it for his glory. And that is the beauty of the gospel that we believe it is not contingent on us, but it's solely founded on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus, we have received 
this grace, when we have trusted in him and repented of our sins, we have received it. We have received this grace. So we do not have to trust in ourselves to do everything. We ask God to pour his spirit upon us, to change us, to move us, to lead us. And for those of you who do not follow Jesus or you say you don't follow Jesus, I hope and pray you see this amazing love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. And a lot of what this passage is, is, is about is how we are to be the church. Right? These are things that Paul is calling us to do and you know, the ways in which we are to act as a church. But Christianity, at the core of it, is not rooted in our actions. Our actions are important. Paul makes it very clear. But it's not rooted in our actions. Our actions solely flow from the faith we have received. It's centered on God coming down to save sinners through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, his rising up from the dead. And if we believe in him, if we believe in that truth, he promises he will surely do his work through you. So my hope and prayer is that all of us, all of us here truly believe that today. Because Paul says it is in Jesus we receive his joy, his peace, his thing, his, uh, this uh, feeling of thanksgiving that we have. This comes from Jesus alone. And that is the will of God in Christ. And if we are in Christ, his love, his grace, his joy, his peace, it is there for us, for all of us. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to fill us with his love, grace, and peace, and joy. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you show us, as the church, how we are to live, how we are to uh, submit to our authority, to have good godly leaders, how we are to uh, relate with one another, to admonish one another when needed, to encourage one another, to help one another, to encourage one another. And God, also how we are to live as a church, to conduct ourselves as a church, to live in contentment, ultimate contentment because of what you have done for us. And God, I pray that all of this will be rooted and founded in what Christ has done for us. That we don't try to do these things just because we feel like it's the right thing to do, but Lord, we do it because we are filled with your spirit that we are filled with the love of Christ. And because of that love, we have this love, this grace, this joy, this peace that is so much better than anything the world can offer us. God, I pray that all of us will truly know and experience the amazing gospel truth here today. That Jesus has come down, has died on the cross, has, has rose from the grave for our sins, to forgive us of our sins, to pay the penalty of our sins so that we can receive eternal life and we can be cleansed and, and now be perfected in holiness and that we can now live as victorious followers of Jesus. God, help us to see this more and more. And for those of us who do not believe, help, help them to see this amazing truth, oh God. May your spirit work in us here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.